Well, the number keeps changing a little bit, but we know there are currently at least 295 wildfires burning throughout the province of B.C. There have been more than 1,100 wildfires since April 1st, and the B.C. Wildfire Service is saying that this is a much worse year. It is We're seeing many more hectares burned compared to the 10-year average. So joining us to talk more about what's happening in the Okanagan region is Shelby Tom, Global News Okanagan reporter. Shelby, thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, How are things there as far as uh, the fires burning and the air quality? Yeah, well, the big fire that we're watching right now in the Okanagan is the Inkameep Creek wildfire. That's burning between Oliver and Asuyus. It broke out on Monday afternoon and quickly grew to 2,000 hectares in size within just 24 hours. So we're still waiting for an update on the size. They're having trouble mapping it because of reduced visibility and the heavy smoke in that area. Uh, That wildfire, of course, prompting hundreds of evacuations. So we still have hundreds of people out of their homes and hundreds more on evacuation alerts between Oliver and Asuyus. This is east of Asuyus Lake. A couple of additional evacuation orders issued last night. Uh, The regional district of Kootenai Boundary has ordered residents of 122 properties to evacuate on the north side of Highway 3. So this is because this fire on the mountainside is burning east uh, towards those communities. So we now have five local jurisdictions that are impacted by this very disruptive fire with different orders and alerts being issued by all of those different regional districts and towns. So that one wildfire alone, approximately 700 properties under evacuation order and another 1,000 properties under alert. Uh, We talked to a couple yesterday who were under the alert, but they left. They chose to leave and go and stay with friends in Kelowna, mainly because of the smoke in the air, saying that they have uh, some health concerns and the smoke was really bothering them. What is the air like? What does it look like? The air quality is quite poor, especially in the Asuyus Oliver area near the uh, fire zone. I live in Penticton, about 40 kilometers away, and we were sucked in with smoke yesterday. Uh, but the wind seems to have pushed it out. We're seeing a bit of blue skies today. Um, so it really depends on the day. Some days in the Okanagan were socked in. Other days are looking better. Um, the Asuyus mayor, Sue McCordoff, is actually taking a rare step of asking visitors to leave the area during the height of the tourism season. You know, really unprecedented. That town relies heavily on tourism dollars, but they say they want to focus on the life and safety of their residents. You know, emergency social services and accommodations are really for local residents, not for tourists and visitors. Um, So tourists are actually being asked to leave the Oliver Asuyus area uh, at the end of July here, the height of the tourism season. It is uh, pretty, uh, yeah, pretty different to, to hear that and to see what's happening. We're hearing reports as well that there are a lack or a shortage of places for evacuees. That is a huge problem out here. So, of course, hotels, motels, vacation rentals are all fully occupied with visitors. Um, So evacuees are having trouble finding temporary accommodations. The local governments here are asking people to stay with family and friends if they can. And many have, but we're also seeing sort of a piece 
piecemeal system where people are reaching out on social media and saying, hey, I have a room, hey, I have a basement suite, and people are, are connecting over social media to find accommodations. Uh, but that's another reason that local governments are asking visitors to leave to free up some of those Spaces for evacuees, and this is an evolving situation in the Oliver Seuss area. That fire is still burning aggressively and out of control, and is spreading. Um, so, more evacuation orders or alerts could be issued, and they just want to be prepared for that. And we know as well, people living in this area, anybody who's been there for any length of time has probably dealt with wildfires in the past, has made it through wildfire season. But even people we're talking to are saying this is earlier, uh, like we've been hearing from the wildfire service, more hectares have burned this season already, higher than the 10-year average. What are the thoughts or what are people saying about the fact that it is so aggressive and it is earlier? Yeah, this is early in the season, and the Okanagan was spared for a few weeks there. We didn't have really any major fires. They were sort of concentrated in that Kamloops-Thompson-Caribou region. Uh, But now we have several large fires that have sprung out in the Okanagan. Another one uh, near Sycamus in the Shushwap region, a 1,000 people forced from their homes. Uh, It's called the Two-Mile Creek Fire now 130 hectares in size. Uh, So many communities here in the Okanagan are being impacted by wildfires. And it has become, you know, a fortunate reality of living here. We had the really bad fire years in 2017, 2018. Of course, 2020 last summer uh, wasn't that bad province-wide, but we had the huge uh, fire near Penticton here that burned down a home. And forced hundreds of people from their homes. And so it is an unfortunate reality of living in the southern interior in the Okanagan region now, where we seem to just expect these large wildfires every summer, expect uh, that we're going to be socked in with smoke. Um, so it is, um, you know, a difficult reality of, of living here through the summer months. Uh, and I know, Shelby, we talked earlier about Lytton, when Lytton was decimated by the fire that started there. Uh, not, not the exact same area. But have any structures that you know of or do we know have any structures been lost in the Okanagan area wildfires? The good news is that we have not heard that any structures have have been lost. The local fire departments are getting a lot of praise for doing the structural protection. So while the BC Wildfire Service focuses on the actual firefight, you know, in the mountainous terrain, we have the local fire departments that are sending up sprinklers on the roofs of homes and hose lines and really keeping people's homes and businesses watered down and wet so they don't catch fire if an ember were to fly over onto their property. So the good news is no structures lost at this point, including at the Incomeet wildfire between Oliver and Asuyus. Um, but another thing we should talk about is the impact on tourism. Of course, this is a uh, heavily populated area in the tourism season and the black sage bench this world-renowned a wine growing region near oliver uh, is being affected by this wildfire some of the most popular and highly touted wineries i'm sure your listeners know burrowing owl phantom creek these wineries are actually under evacuation and temporarily closed Again, the good news is no wineries have been lost, no vineyards, we're being told, have been lost in the vicinity of the fire, but it is affecting uh, the operations of businesses, and uh, many of those wineries along the Black Sage Bench have been closed.
Uh, it's pretty amazing to think that even vineyards haven't been lost because, again, when we were talking to that couple who left, they uh, sent out a picture as well up the mountain. They could see the fire coming, and there was a vineyard that was kind of the buffer between their cottage and where the fire was burning. So it is pretty amazing to think that that, that the firefighting efforts have been so effective they've been able to save all of that. Exactly. That's where we're being told by some winery managers in the area yesterday that vineyards weren't affected, that structures weren't lost at this point. But it is an evolving situation and that fire is out of control. So we just have to keep an eye on that as well. And just, uh, I, I don't think we have an answer to this, but looking at the wildfire information, the dashboard with the causes of fires to date, and this is looking at all of the fires to date, lightning has caused about half at about 49%, but person-caused fires is sitting at about 35%. Uh, I know, again, we were hearing there was no lightning in the area when the Incomeet fire started. I would imagine, is the cause still under investigation? Yeah, the cause is still under investigation, and we have a 2 o'clock update with all of the local authorities here. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll get more information as far as the cause and as far as the fire activity and which way the fire is growing. It seems to be burning in a southeast direction, which would be away from the town of Oliver, a town of Asoyus, but it seems to be burning east uh, towards the Baldy area, and that's why we're seeing additional evacuations and orders. So we are expecting an update at 2 o'clock. Of course, the BC Wildfire Service put out that wind advisory yesterday saying that the Kamloops, Lytton and Okanagan areas will experience gusting winds up to 50 kilometres an hour with more heavy winds tomorrow. And of course, that's why Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth said they were declaring a provincial state of emergency because of these weather conditions and the deteriorating wildfire situation. So it is expected to get worse in BC, unfortunately, before it gets better. All right. We'll be looking forward to uh, the update that's coming at 2 p.m. today. Shelby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the update. Thanks for having me. Well, yesterday on the program, we checked in with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. They had released some information about how much has already been spent on the federal government gun buyback program. It hasn't started yet. Not a single firearm has been purchased at this point. But according to the records that were obtained by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, more than $2 million has already been spent on the startup that's doing things like salaries and operations for the program. And that's money that's not really even counted in the budget for the program. We've also heard from the parliamentary budget officer that the cost of the reimbursement outside of running the program, the reimbursement costs could be around the $756 million price tag. And many believe that's a conservative estimate. It will likely be much more than that. Again, that doesn't include staffing or administration costs. So what does all of this mean? And should the program even be going ahead? Daniel Fritter joins me now, the owner of Caliber. Caliber is Canada's largest gun magazine. Daniel, great to have you back on the program. Always a pleasure, Jill. Thanks for the opportunity. What are your thoughts on this and any surprises in the new numbers that we're hearing about? Uh, perhaps that the number is only $2 million, but I guess we're still so early in. Um, not not really surprising. Um, as the PBO report that we discussed said, it's the, the massive bill is just for that. But if you read the report that they 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 can't put a price in the administration because even when they looked at the New Zealand estimate that they had to use uh, when they weren't offered any data from Bill Blair, that 
They couldn't even extrapolate the New Zealand data for administrative costs because we're a country that's 37 times larger than New Zealand. Uh, and in the report, it even said that the PBO wasn't comfortable putting numbers to that because it's almost impossible to say how much the administration will cost. And for people listening and wondering why I say that, it's um, because you're dealing with firearms, you're dealing with a very controlled product uh, that obviously uh, you can't just, you know, have people drive down to the local police station and hand the rifle over and get a check. Uh, there's going to be a whole system in place where your exact model will have defined values based on condition. It'll need to be assessed. And throughout all that, of course, logistically, it's going to need to be shipped by bonded carriers and stored in bonded warehouses in accordance with the law, which uh, just adds the cost. So, you know, we're looking at $2 million so far for standing up an office that currently has 11 employees. You know, how many more employees is it going to take to seize the probably 250, 350,000 guns that they're talking about, 4,000 guns? They don't even know. So... Um, it's just a sign of what's to come. And unfortunately, I suspect that number is going to balloon much, much higher. Uh, you referenced the New Zealand information and comparing it, and I, I agree. I, I know people often like to compare the two countries for whatever reason, but they're not really similar when we talk about structure, when we talk about population. Are there any references? Are there any reports? Is there information out there that shows a program like this has been put in place elsewhere and has led to a decrease in violence? Not particularly. Everyone points to New Zealand as the most recent case where they're still getting a lot of guns back. And and now when I mean most of the headlines pertaining to the New Zealand gun ban have mostly been around um, cost overruns, complications, but also uh, to be honest, the mass non-compliance. They're, they're not seeing a lot of these guns come back because people just don't want to give them up. Um, Australia would be the previous example, and people always point to that and go, oh, there's, you know, the famous uh, Jim Jeffries did his media, his comedy skit, where, you know, they banned guns in Australia after Port Arthur, and no one ever shot again. Or, like, there's been a ton of mass shootings in, in Australia since the gun ban. Uh, more and more actually happening in the last few years, unfortunately. Um, and again, to, to reference what you were saying, even Australia, you look at New Zealand, Australia, we are in a unique place in Canada because we share the longest undefended border in the world with the most heavily armed nation on the planet. Um, so to look to other countries, even if you were to look to some of the European countries that are very restrictive on firearms, um, Germany or France or those, those jurisdictions where it's very difficult to get a gun, the UK, uh, those are all countries surrounded by other countries that have very strict controls. So it kind of feels a bit like this is legislation in a vacuum that they're not kind of, they haven't opened an atlas in the last little while. Because uh, everyone in the Lower Mainland knows you drive down Zero Avenue, the border is a ditch, you know. Uh, every day, every night, I guarantee you, someone drives down that border and throws a bag full of guns across that ditch and someone else drives down the street and picks it up. You know, it's there's, there's, a, there's a motel on the border called the Smuggler's Inn where you used to get a discount if you didn't see someone smuggling on the hotel property. You know, like this is how porous the border is. So the whole thing i mean i'll be honest it's it's tragic you know i'm a business owner throughout COVID has been very difficult obviously and looking at the deficit spending that's been going on and having a 10-month-old kid and looking at the deficit and going how does this all rectify itself and and seeing them continue to pile just what will inevitably be over a billion dollar program into this buyback and then looking at a map and going for what you know the the gangsters that are shooting each other also deal in drugs which are completely prohibited so where do they get their drugs well probably the same places that they get their guns from you know the United States. So it, it seems just, it's very, at this point, to be honest, it's just depressing. I feel dejected more than anything else at this point. I, I just want to clarify something you just said. So you're saying bag full or bags full of guns every day being tossed across the border. There was a National Geographic article that came out. I used to live in Tawasson, so hence why I kind of looked into this. Uh, 
And I accidentally rode into the United States on a mountain bike because Point Roberts at the end of Tawasin, you have, there's trails that just lead to Point Roberts and you won't notice until you're on a street called Roosevelt Ave and go, oh, crap, i got to get back to my country. That's how porous it is. And National Geographic did a great story on the smugglers in. Um, and they followed along with the RCMP and the RCMP team that was interdicting and working with U.S. Border Patrol very closely uh, freely admitted that they see them every night, but they can't catch them because it's it's a massive length. It's a border. It's thousands of miles long, right? So, um, and that's the RCMP saying with their interdiction teams that they can't even scratch the surface of what crosses just the border in the lower mainland on a daily basis. Um, but, you know, apparently my AR-15 that's stored in a gun safe by a guy that goes for a daily criminal record check is the problem. Do you know of any uh, legal law-abiding gun owners at this point that are looking forward to this, that want to participate in the buyback? I haven't heard anyone. Uh, the attitudes generally range from, I mean, we do have some people that will say like, oh, I'm a hunter and I support it. But then we ask a few questions, it starts to kind of come apart. And you go like, I don't know if you actually do own a gun or hunt. Um, personally, anecdotally, I haven't come across anyone that I know of that's that thinks this is a good idea. And that, that includes, to be totally frank, we work with a ton of police officers. That includes police officers. I don't know. I mean, I have a, a very good friend of mine as RCMP, and he's freely admitted there are Facebook groups of police officers discussing this stuff. Um, and they have said, you know what, we're just going to screw up the warrants because we don't want to serve the warrants. Because especially in rural populations or more remote areas where you might have three or four police officers serving a population of a few thousand, um, they have to have working relationships with the people in those towns if they're to effectively police them and ensure public safety. Um, when they are going to knock on someone's door to steal, a, take, well, not steal, but to, to seize a gun from someone that may not want to give it up, they don't want to knock on that door because if he doesn't have any other crimes that he's committed, you know, like I'm a good example of that. I've never committed a crime, I'm, you know, but I own the guns. If they knock on my door, they don't want to knock on my door because I'm not a criminal. I'm not the kinds of people that they typically will interact with. Um, so you've got police officers just saying they will find ways to not enforce this because they don't want to take the risk on themselves, but they also don't want to take on the risk to their their jobs and, and to what it could do to their community policing. Um, you know, the after in, the, in New York when they had a massive crime wave and, and they fixed it, they fixed it with a massive amount of police in the communities that they worked in and lived in, um, and that's sort of what this, this really does a disservice to that. And I mean, that's why I say I'm a bit depressed is because I come at this primarily, I may own a gun magazine, but I'm also a father, a normal Canadian. So public safety is tantamount to me. It's, it's absolutely the most important thing. Um, and I see this as a, as a real step away. I mean, the same reason that I supported the legalization of marijuana so that we could get it out of the criminal organizations is the same reason I don't support criminalizing guns now, because it'll simply give the criminal organizations another commodity, um, I think we'd be we'd be spending that money better off on policing and interdicting these gangs and trying to stop some of the opioid addiction issues. Uh, there's a million other things we could be doing, frankly, that is better than this. Um, and I'm, like I said, it's pretty depressing that this is what we're doing. Uh, you raise an interesting point, and we often talk about the guns that are the visible ones, or what people might think, where their head might go when we talk about uh, restricted or prohibited weapons. And you mentioned the AR-15. Yep. Are we going to see a scenario then? Because that's one that that so by owning that gun, because it's a, a, a restricted, there's a record of that. You're tied to that gun for yep. for life for as long as you own that gun. So obviously the police know that you own that. They know that it's that it's that it's safely stored. But there are so many guns that are on this list that 
there's no record of them. So in what scenario are we going to see or do you see this playing out that if people don't participate in the gun buyback and they just continue to keep their guns locked in their gun safes and stored safely, are, is the idea then what, that police officers do, like you mentioned, just start knocking on doors saying, hey, do you have guns in there that we're supposed to be buying back from you? I legitimately don't know. Um, those those guns, the, the non-restricted firearms, um, that obviously are not registered, so they don't know where they are. That's been part of why it's been so hard for the government to, to come up with the estimates. And that's why the government estimate and the industry estimate is so far apart, because the government just kind of went off of the previous registry data and extrapolated it forward by increasing those numbers by 25%, which is frankly like an arbitrary number that I couldn't find any support for it anywhere else in the report, because it's not like we had 25% more gun owners or anything else. Um, they just kind of did back of the napkin math and said this is what I think it's going to cost, whereas the PBO used the formal estimates provided by industry on import certificates. So it's a very stringent system there. Uh, but no one really knows. Um, obviously, quite a few guns are sitting at retailers at a retail level, and they would probably be eager to get paid for them because at this point they've been sitting on many of them over you know six figures worth of inventory that is just stuck in storage that you're paying overhead on. Um, but for the private individuals, I think, you're just going to get a lot of people that hold on to them and hope that maybe the government changes and that we can get them back into circulation and be using them. Um, my concern there is, again, because, you know, thinking about a public safety perspective, compliance is public safety. A law is not safe if people don't comply with it. Um, if people aren't going to the, you can keep these guns in an amnesty situation and be compliant with the law. But the longer this goes on, uh, I think you could start to see some of these guns do leave out the back door and make their way into criminal hands. Because if, if you're, a private citizen that lives somewhere out in the boondocks and the cousin that just got out of prison that you don't really hang around with offers you tens of thousands of dollars for a few guns that he knows that you own that the government said you can't keep. Ten years down the road, when you're feeling really disenfranchised and you've got a massive tax rate, do you say yes or no? Who knows? Hmm. I would say no, but I can't guarantee that for the two to 300,000 other gun owners that own these things. It's, you know, to have that scenario unfold across this country 300,000 times, I don't like the odds. Um, it would have been better just let the people that own them continue to buy, sell, and use them legally. Um, uh, also, too, the guns being banned have been used predominantly in the U.S. They, you know, they tried to get a lot of guns that have been used in shootings, but they just aren't. These are not guns that are heavily used in crime. If, if police officers, and that's why, you know, the, the United uh, the police chiefs and stuff have have come out against this because they're saying when we're chasing down criminals, we're not worried they're going to pull an AR-15 out of their car. We're worried about a Glock in the glove box. Right. You know. Um, and, and also, too, again, this is what, I'll, you know, for those that are listening and don't really care about guns, at the end of the day, this gun buyback, the, the compensation the PBO estimated is going to be $756 million. That's probably even on the low side still, because that doesn't include any um, lawsuits that businesses may bring about lost revenues for additional accessories and optics and ammunition, which will push it up. It'll be at least a $1.5 billion bill. The annual RCMP subsidy that they receive by the federal government to subsidize their policing cost less than that. So we could literally double the RCMP for a single year or conversely look at things like putting a mental health professional in every third police car or something like that for roughly the same amount of money. We're talking huge sums of cash that could create very real change that average people would notice on the street. There would be less homelessness. There would be less addiction. But instead, they're going after guns. And I know a lot of people cheer it, but it doesn't make fiscal sense anymore. We have an effective gun control system in Canada. It's very resilient. I, it just piling more on, it doesn't make sense. 
Well, this next story is a bit heartbreaking. Well, it's very heartbreaking. It has to do with a dog that did not survive an attack. It happened on July 15th and it happened in Langley. It was near the Sandman Inn Hotel at 202nd Street and 88th Avenue. And joining me to talk more about what happened and how this has led to an online campaign is Trisha Hill. Trisha, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I don't want you to have to go into all of the details and relive what happened on July 15th, but can you tell us a little bit uh, about how things unfolded while you were out with your dog, Frankie? Um, I was just in the area to pick up take up takeout food. I was parked and waiting for my food, so I decided to take my dog for a quick walk. And we went around the complex, and I approached the Sandman parking lot, and to, just behind me to my left in a blind spot, I heard what sounded like chains dragging. And I looked quickly behind me and noticed there was two pit bulls laying on their bed chained together and didn't appear to be chained to anything else. So I immediately steered my dog in the opposite direction and continued walking without making a scene, like without... And um, without alerting the dogs is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And um, then I heard the train chains dragging closer to me, and I looked behind me, and they were on foot, not attached to anything at, at that point. They just they were coming after me. So I yanked the leash of my dog, who was only eight pounds, into my arms, and I huddled her and start him, sorry, and started running. And before I knew it, I was had a thunk on my back, and I was pushed down, and the dog, one of the dogs started attacking my dog and it it just felt like it lasted forever. I was trying to get in there to help and the owner, I could, didn't see any owner. There was no owner when I arrived. Um, and then all of a sudden some lady came out of nowhere and didn't intervene. She didn't try to call the dogs off. She didn't try to pull them off. She just kind of huddled over like I was and that was it. And after some time, my, I noticed my dog dropped to the ground, and he was still alive. He was crying. So I picked him up, ran again in the same fashion, huddled him in, and I didn't get very far. I was trying to run into the, the hotel, and the same thing happened. The dogs got me from behind, knocked me over, and the attack continued until it was too late. And, and then Frankie was dead. There was several hotel staff standing outside the entrance watching. <laughs> I was screaming for help the whole time. I, I can't even imagine what that would have been like and, and the fact that, that there were people around as well and that the owner, it sounds like the owner was there. Uh, after that and, and after that and you realized kind of what had unfolded, did the owner do anything, approach you or, or do anything at that point? After everything happened and a nice bystander that was there, not hotel staff, just a neighboring lady that lived in a condo. She had my my dead dog in her arms and she said, I've got your dog, I've got your dog, he's with me. And then I just looked around dazed and confused and I noticed that the owner had put the dogs back in her car. She did admit fault, but it's a little little too late. Was the, the incident reported to, I guess it would be Langley Township or authorities? Well, yes. Um, during my second attack, when it was like almost over, I yelled out, is anyone going to call 911? Is anyone going to call 911? And 
someone said out of the hotel staff, ma'am, 911's been called. Mm. And yes, everybody, yeah, RCMP showed up after laps. The Langley Protection showed up. Langley Animal Protection showed up. Um, paramedics showed up because I, I was bitten as well. It sounds like the dogs were, were attacking you, or like you said, you got pushed to the ground. Yeah. Were, were you injured, or, or do you have injuries from that? I do. I have a bite on my the side of my neck under my chin, um, and my hand was bitten and severely bruised. Um, scrape marks from falling, um, and now an extreme fear of anybody behind me <laughs> because of the attack. <laughs> you mentioned that the, the owner of the two dogs that attacked put the dogs in her vehicle. Were the dogs, uh, were they taken by uh, the, the animal control that came or do you know what happened at that point? Yeah, she put them in her car and then once Laps came to investigate, um, that Laps took the dog, possession of the dog. Um, she didn't leave because she's a customer at the hotel, so she's still there. I, I know you've also... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just... Yeah, I'm just going to say, so she, she cooperated, she's still around, but Laps, and Laps took the dog. So at this point, you don't know the, the kind of the fate of those dogs or, or what's being decided as, as far as their future? I do know, and one of the pit bulls has been put down, and the other one is pending further investigation. You have set up, and I know with your family as well, you've set up a justice for Frankie Page. And there's also a petition on change.org talking or calling for dog owner legislation reform. Uh, I know you mentioned you or perhaps your daughter wanted to talk a bit more about that. Can you explain a bit what you would like to see changed as far as how the laws are in place? Hi there. My name's Megan. I'm Trisha's daughter. Hi, Megan. Thank you for um, doing this. I, I can't even imagine just the trauma and stress from, from going through this. But I was hoping you could talk a bit more about the, the call for the legislation reform. What would you like to see? Me and my family are essentially fighting so that no other dog or human ever has to suffer like our Frankie did. Um, simply put, we're, um, we are looking for dog owner reform. Um, Right now that we know of, there's currently no bridge that um, connects animal law and criminal law. Um, So essentially, we're fighting for legislation that holds dog owners criminally accountable for their dog's actions, regardless of their breed. Obviously, we can't speak for all cases, um, but in our case particular, the owner that day made a series of choices that were negligent, um, leaving her dogs unattended and not tied up in the public place to allow this tragedy to occur. She made those choices that allowed our dog to be killed that day and my mom hurt. Um, she's now walking around without any consequences as we speak. And we believe that other negligent dog owners need to be held criminally accountable for their dog's actions. Um, currently, there's not enough of a deterrent to um, make dog owners responsible for their um, dogs. And so we're hoping to um, make those laws for sure, so that people are deterred from being negligent with their animals, essentially. Um, and yeah, and I just want to reiterate that this is for all breeds, not breed specific. Right. Um, this is for all dog owners. Um, needs to They need to be held accountable. They are the owners. They're the ones that choose to have a leash, have a muzzle, whatever. And they need to make those choices that are responsible to allow these things to not happen again.
And not that it makes a difference in this case, but do you have any idea or have you been told if these particular dogs have a history of violence or if they've been involved in any other attacks? Unfortunately, due to privacy issues, um, our CMP and LAPS have not been able to provide that information to us. So we haven't been able to get any information. They actually are from Alberta, so we don't know what their history was in Alberta. So, yeah, that's essentially what we're trying to do is to hold dog owners accountable for um, their dog's actions. Well, Megan, we'll leave it there and we will follow up on this. Absolutely. But thank you so much. And please uh, pass on uh, both my condolences and thank you to your mom. Thank you so much, Joe. We appreciate it. And can I just say one more thing? Mm -hmm, For sure. We, we just wanted to let everyone know that the outpour of support from our friends and family and community has been seriously too much to even comprehend. And we are so thankful from the bottom of our, our very broken hearts. And together we'll make a change and we will do this together. Thank you, Jill. All right. Thank you so much. Just before the break, I was speaking with Trisha Hill. She was with her dog Frankie, a Chihuahua, on July 15th when they were attacked by two dogs outside of the Sandman Inn Hotel. That's the one in Walnut Grove at 202nd and 88th Avenue. We also heard from her brother, uh, her daughter, sorry, Megan, as they are launching a petition. They'd like to see tougher laws when it comes to dog ownership. Well, let's bring in Rebecca Bretter, an animal rights lawyer with Bretter Law. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Jill. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I know it's been a a very busy week for you, but glad you could join us to talk about this. Were you able to hear the interview with Trisha and with Megan? I did. I did. And and, uh, I'd be lying if I I said that I didn't choke up. But my heart really goes out to both Trisha, Megan and, and poor Frankie. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely a heartbreaking story. And, and, you know, I have to say when, um, when Ben, your producer called me this morning asking uh, for me to join you today, I thought that I, I was getting ready to get into a whole pit bull debate, right? Cause often when I'm called about this, the, the question is, should we be banning the pit bull breed? And I, I am just so impressed with, with Megan and Trisha and, and no matter, I mean, what they're going through now is unbearable. My heart goes out to them. And for them to have the strength to say that what they're looking for is uh, are better laws, regardless of breed. I mean, she, 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 she spoke exactly the way I would, which is that the laws that we need need to reflect essentially responsible dog guardianship or dog ownership, regardless of breed. Um, there's absolutely no sense, and science tells us today that breed-specific legislation doesn't work. So their idea uh, about what they want to do um, about getting people criminally accountable for a situation like this I agree to a certain extent. I think that is a great idea, but as long, and there's a but, (laughs) as long as that's part of a more holistic approach, I think that the fundamental thing that's missing in our legislation and in our, uh, from provincial legislation to our local bylaws is, uh, is legislation that targets known risk factors and behaviors. So things like making sure the dogs are spayed and neutered, because we know that if they're not, that that can cause behavioral issues that can lead to aggression. Legislation should target past behavior um, that's fully investigated. So does a dog guardian have a repeated history of letting their dog do bad things without taking any corrective measures? 
Uh, I'm also a very strong proponent of teaching kids from a young age how to be around dogs. And, and, and adults would learn from that, too. You know, you never run up to a dog that you don't know. I've taught my daughter since she was a baby to never do that, to always ask the person first and to put your hand out so that the dog could sniff you first and things like that. But, and so we need education in schools, too, about responsible dog guardianship. And, and especially nowadays where it seems like every household almost has a dog. So as a community, I think we owe it to ourselves and to our companion animals that we know how to be responsible with them. And, and that ensures not only responsible guardianship, but it ultimately ensures dog welfare too. You mentioned the past history of this and Megan had said all they know about these dogs is that they originally or at some point they were in Alberta. They came to BC from Mm -hmm. Alberta. Uh, Is there a problem there or a lack of communication when it comes to making sure if we're talking about interprovincial that we know the background of a dog? There is, but I I don't see how that could be uh, solved, or at least quickly, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. I mean, um, it's hard enough to get information about a person, (laughs) right, their criminal background, um, because of the lack of communication between different police departments, let alone animal control departments that are so underserviced. But, yeah, so I I think it it would be hard to do that, but it wouldn't be bad. Uh, The only thing is, I mean, that I have to say is that... And I defend dogs quite a bit. I mean, it's probably a good 20% of what I do. And uh, animal control investigations, and not to throw them under the bus, but very often the investigations are not thoroughly done. You know, they, they go by, by one side and one side only. And if there's an injury, they talk to the dog, to the, to the dog owner who allegedly was involved, you know, in, in the attack, but they don't really consider it. And so we have to, whenever I hear stories like this, I try just because of my experience to not jump the gun, so to speak, to not make assumptions. But here I have to admit, you know, some red flags, went off when Trisha was saying how she heard chains dragging and the dogs were chained together. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds like those were not regular harnesses that you would see a responsible dog guardian have. Why on earth would you have chains on your dogs? Even if you're walking them, that's not appropriate at all. Likely way too heavy. So there, there are certain, and that they were chained together like that. And where was the dog owner to begin with? I mean, yeah, dogs sometimes do escape, but There were some red flags here, but it is unfortunate. I think that the fact that they are from Alberta is realistically is going to be hard for Trisha to get any kind of justice. We only have a a couple minutes. Do you think, though, there is a gap? Because part of their petition is they want to bridge the gap, they say, between criminal law and animal control. Is there a gap there? There is, because there just isn't a connection right now, right? I mean, the only animal cruelty laws we have, or, or the only criminal laws we have associated with animals are animal cruelty laws. And, and even those, so that's when people basically abuse animals, and those are, are pretty hard to prosecute too. We're getting some slightly better sentences nowadays, but there's nothing dealing with animal control and, and situations like this. But like I said at the beginning, I think this uh, approaching these issues really needs to be a holistic approach where we need legislation that targets known risk behavior and to ensure responsible dog guardianship. And when you say risk behavior, do you mean the the dogs or the owners, though? Because somebody might hear that and think, well, we shouldn't have to wait until something horrible happens to then to then enforce that. 
Yeah, great question. Both. So known risk factors, it, it, it goes hand in hand, both the dog owners and the, the dogs themselves. I mean, the dogs, it is very, very rare that a dog is inherently aggressive. It's usually as a result of something that the person did or did not do for that matter. So the known risk behaviors or, or factors would include things like the dogs not being neutered. Right. We know science tells us that if dogs are not neutered or spayed, that increases their chances of being aggressive or developing some kind of behavioral issue. So we need to ensure for, for people to be fined if their dogs aren't spayed or neutered, unless, of course, they're part of a breeding program, which I don't really support. But, um, you know, unless there, there are some exceptions, but there there needs to be laws that, that target things like that. And as well uh, as ensuring that higher fines are given for people who have a repeated history of being negligent with, with the way they are with their dogs.